You're listening to Conversations with John Anderson featuring Kenneth J. Barnes. Ken, welcome to this conversation. I've been looking forward to it enormously. Uh, uh, and I don't normally, this is not about me, except to say that I had many years as part of a reforming government. I was at the heart of economic reconstruction, paying down debt, trying to reform the tax system and so forth. Like you, I believe that capitalism matters because for good and for ill, it's been the best system we've yet developed for raising people out of poverty, giving them opportunities and so forth. And we can explore that. But to come to you, you're a pretty amazing individual. You're not just a writer. Uh, you've been a businessman uh-huh. of, I think, uh, you know, quite an outstanding sort of track record. You've done a lot of things. Uh, you're an academic uh, and you're a theologian. Uh-huh. Uh, tell us about your business background. Well, as you can imagine, my golf game has suffered because of those three things. <laughs> um, I uh, started in business really quite young. I loved business. I was pretty good at it. I, I joke with my students. I tell them that, you know, if they watch movies from the 1980s, I was the guy with the yellow braces and yellow tie. You know, I was a vice president at 25 and very proud of it sort of thing. But um, I also uh, was a, a person of faith and always struggled with what I was going to do, how I was going to square the circle between my ambitions, if you will, uh, in, uh, in the business world and my deep religious convictions. How do you do that? And so um, at one point I went to seminary fairly early in my business career thinking that I would you know, leave behind filthy lucre and be a country parson somewhere. Um, But it didn't happen that way. Actually, what happened is I began to view my business career and my work and began to view economics uh, through the prism of my religious faith. And that changed everything. So I actually spent 25 years combining, if you will, three careers. Uh, I did go on to be ordained uh, and, and I served a church Uh, in Oxfordshire. I spent most of my adult life doing international business, as the Americans call it. As you know, everything outside of North America they consider international. Um, One of these days I'll I'll meet an American who lives where he or she was born. Yeah, right. Good luck. (laughs) Uh, So so I had the secret handshake. You know, I, I was doing international business, whatever that meant. But at a time when globalization was just beginning. So it was an exciting time to do business on six continents. I really had a magnificent uh, uh, time of it. Um, But I was doing that uh, while serving a local church uh, and doing my academic studies. So I was, you know, I was a researcher who was uh, involved in, I ultimately ended up with, you know, five advanced degrees, (laughs) which my wife said, if I get another one, it'll be six degrees of separation. and pastoring a church in, in the local community, they, they knew me as Reverend Barnes. They didn't know me as, you know, Professor Barnes or Ken Barnes, the guy in the corner office. Um, but at work, which is where I spent most of my time, I was the guy in the corner office. I was the guy who was making those very ethical decisions, those decisions about how we use capital, where we build factories, how we pay dividends, etc. for a very, very long time. So. So those, those three worlds, while they seem to be disconnected, in fact, um, should always, in my opinion, be connected. And because we have gone into this, this belief system of compartmentalization, where we, we don't mix our worldview and our religious beliefs uh, with our economic work, 
we've gotten into the trouble we've gotten into. And we've got a system now that I think is morally bankrupt. There's a lot to explore here. Before we do that, you're kind of the typical American success story in a way that we hear about. Uh, your, your grandmother escaped Mussolini's... My Italy? father. Your father. My Sorry, father. I've got that wrong. Yeah, so um, my grandmother, of course, was the, the, uh, the person who made the decision. My father was yeah. a small boy. Right. But uh, when Mussolini came to power in 1922, uh, my, uh, my grandmother did not want her children to grow up in that environment. They had already been to America, and uh, so they got on a ship and went back to America. And so my father, while he was actually born when they were in America the first time, so was technically a naturalized citizen, was also an immigrant. And he went through Ellis Island with all the other immigrants. And that was so informative. That really, really formed his personality yeah. and his understanding of of patriotism and, and work ethic. And he, he understood very quickly that if you have bad leadership, it will produce bad results. So it was the responsibility of individuals to work as hard as possible and to trust the system to produce virtuous results. And that was the American dream. And he embodied that American dream. Hardest working man I ever met in my life was my father. And there were six of us, I was the youngest, he sent us all to private school to get the best education we could, and I'm happy to say all, all six of us did very well. But it was that, that work ethic of that so-called greatest generation yeah. that drove it. There's something else, though, though isn't it? Uh, that, that, that it's uh, the, uh, the reality is that they escaped looking for freedom in a democracy, and they prospered under capitalism. Mm -hmm. Both are now being questioned by young people, but at its best, it's certainly delivered for your family and for you. At its best, it delivers for everybody. I mean, yeah. it is the best system ever devised for the creation of wealth. I remind people the title of the book is not replacing capitalism. Yeah. It's redeeming capitalism. And it does need to be redeemed. And, and in the book, what I try to do is I try to unpack, if you will, the evolution of capitalism from the traditional capitalism that Adam Smith observed which was built on a very, very particular understanding of virtue and ethics. And the modern capitalism that Max Weber observed, which was a kind of uniquely American version, again, very much driven by the Protestant ethic, which was what my father inherited. You know, they inherited that understanding, that mindset, to the postmodern capitalism we have today. And the postmodern capitalism we have today is a capitalism that unfortunately is devoid of a moral compass and resistant, if not impervious, to ethical constraint. So the excesses now are what we're experiencing. And that's why the generation that's coming up is very skeptical. Yeah, and, that, and this is, we really want to drill into this because it's incredibly important. Just to backtrack, you know, given our cynicism, given that there are reasons for that and we ought to be concerned that our young people are concerned, not just sort of write them off as being naive or inexperienced. They've got reasons for being concerned. Mm -hmm. But before we go anywhere else, I think it's worth exploring. It wasn't just, though, people who were fortunate enough to live in the Western capitalist democracies that did well like your family. The reality is that it hasn't been all been Western know-how, Western science and what have you, but to a large degree, it's been the Western model, Western know-how, science, agricultural production, medicine and so forth that has produced, I think we so easily overlook this, a dramatic improvement globally in people's lifespans, health opportunities. So 
It's a better story than is generally recognized. Much better story. In, in the last 15 years alone, a billion people on this planet have been taken out of poverty, largely because of capitalism. Mm. The, the reason why we have to redeem it is because the other alternatives really don't work. Mm. And I unpack that a little bit in the book. Why utopian systems, mm. while they sound nice, in praxis don't work. So we can do one of three things. We can pretend there's not a problem, and there are a lot of friends that I have that are capitalists, industrialists, mm. entrepreneurs who want to pretend there's not a problem and mm. put their head in the sand, and frankly, you know, they're just waiting for the next tragedy to happen, the next crash, and there will be. Yeah. Uh, or we can go to the utopian side and, and try to manufacture an economic construct that we think will solve all of the world's ills. That wouldn't work. It's been tried, and I can explain why it doesn't work. Or we can say, let's fix this amazing system, because it is an amazing system. And, and part of the problem is that we misunderstand wealth. We misunderstand what wealth is. And in many ways, it's because we've accepted, of all things, Karl Marx's definition of wealth, which is great for a closed economic system if you think that wealth is nothing more than the accumulated value of, or the accumulated use value of commodities, then you can say, okay, it's all about distribution, it's not about wealth creation. But of course, that's absurd. Uh, that's not what wealth is. As I tell my students, wealth uh, is not matter. It can be both created and or destroyed. And it's nothing more than the delta between the amount of labor and resources necessary for subsistence and everything else. And everything else is what makes human beings flourish. So how do you get that delta? Well, actually, technology is how you get the delta. So even in the climate debate, and I am not a climate skeptic at all, I believe the, the, the climate issues are real, but in the extreme ends of the debate, they defer to this closed system. We can't have growth because we have a limited number of commodities. It's just a misunderstanding of growth. Yeah. We can have growth, we can create wealth, and we can do it in a way that doesn't harm the environment, by the way. In fact, the best economic opportunity we have is new technologies for the creation of energy, in my opinion. Uh, but we can do it in a way that also is fairer. Uh, and that does protect mm. and enhance the common good. What has mm. happened is the system we have now is unfair in many ways, and it's exacerbating that problem because of the way we've monetized the system. Let's go back to your opening uh, sweep because it's a deep insight into what's gone wrong with capitalism. You talk about Lehman Brothers and the lens it provides or the prism it provides for us to see through to uh, the great financial crisis, as it's known, of 07, 08, 09. Um, and, and of course, that crisis has not gone away. It was a debt crisis yeah. solved with mountains more debt. So as you said a moment ago, it's going to come back and bite us. It sure is. And we're not prepared and we're not preparing and we are asleep at the wheel in nearly every Western country. Yeah. And that is, you know, as somebody who's been at the forefront of economic reforms and who has children and grandchildren worries me enormously. Mm -hmm. But you're writing on, I mean, if people don't buy this book for any other reason, if they're cynics or don't want to hear what you think ought to be done, they ought to buy it because of your magnificent description of what went wrong as Lehman Brothers as a set of insights into where capitalism's failed us. If we could explore that and then sure. come to government's response and why that's been wrong too. Yeah, I'd be happy to. Um, Thank you, by the way, for, for saying that. I've had a lot of people say they appreciate 
the deconstruction of the uh, global financial crisis and especially Lehman Brothers. You know, the uh, bankruptcy report, the court ordered a full report uh, of what happened. It's called the Volucas Report. And it's about 2,000 pages. And most people are only going to download the 2,000 pages to figure out what went wrong at, at Lehman Brothers. I, of course, did as part of my research. And I distill it in the book. And let me just start with this, this simple observation that I think actually is, is the, the penny that dropped for me. As I did my research, I really came to the conclusion that capitalism is a subject, not an object. Uh, capitalism itself has no hypostasis, to use a good theological term. Uh, it has no agency. It has no will behind it. Um, it is not an artificial construct. It's nothing more than the term we use to describe this phenomenon of lightly regulated, highly monetized free markets. And it is actually the accumulated to result of countless individual and corporate choices. Every choice, every economic choice any person has ever made is a moral choice as well. So the capitalism we have is the capitalism we've chosen. The people at Lehman Brothers made choices to remain, for instance, in CDOs, collateralized debt obligations, when the rest of Wall Street got out of them because of the inherent risk. They chose what they called a counter-cyclical strategy, and they went all in. And they even used that term, by the way, in the court documents, which is a gambling term. They went all in. They violated their own internal risk limits by hundreds of millions of dollars. So the guardrails, which they had set up to keep them from doing these things, they ignored those guardrails. From the standpoint of governance, there was awful internal governance. And I think one of the problems of the chief executive and the chairman being the same person is an interesting phenomenon that we should examine. Because who's going to stand up to Dick Fold when he is both the CEO and the chairman? Nobody. So you then have groupthink in the boardroom, and you know eventually they just made decision after decision, choice after choice, for one reason, and that was greed, and the other side of that coin, fear. They believed that they could continue to make unchallenged profits by investing in these very, very dodgy instruments called CDOs in spite of the fact that everybody else had gotten out of that. And they were afraid that if they told their shareholders they were finally getting out, then they would lose face and they would lose value. So they took a huge risk, a huge gamble. They were imprudent in the extreme. They showed no fortitude of any kind. They violated all of the cardinal virtues, really. And they continued down the road until eventually, when they went to the the overnight market to, to trade for, uh, for liquidity for the next day's trading, uh, there, was, there was no one who would lend to them, the repo market it's called. Uh, and the repo market, not only did they exploit that market, they lied to that market, they cheated that market. Because there was a, a little accounting trick called Repo 105, which said that if you borrow on the overnight market and there's more than a 5% premium, instead of treating it on the books as uh, 
uh, as a financial transaction, you can actually treat it as a sale of assets. So then they would do that the day before they had to report their earnings and they would take it off their balance sheet and essentially give uh, an, an unreal view of their financial stability. So everything they did was either technically legal but highly immoral or borderline illegal but no one ever went to jail for it. So when, when it collapsed, it created this contagion because, you know, as, as someone once said, you, you never know who's swimming naked till the tide goes out. Warren Buffett said that. And nobody knew who else was exposed. Because it wasn't just Lehman Brothers. No, it was the whole system. Everybody was potentially exposed. And here's why. The, the idea of a collateralized debt obligation is that you're going to take debt from various sources you're going to buy it from the people who originally lent the money, which means you're now divorcing the relationship between borrower and lender, which is a moral relationship as well as a fiduciary relationship. And you are going to bundle it and sell it off as a separate financial mm. uh, product. And the cash flow from that is how you yes. generate your, your revenue. Well, the, the thinking was that if there were some bad apples in that barrel, it would be okay because the majority of the assets were pretty sound assets. So the good loans are going to mitigate the risk of the bad loans. Housing prices would rise Absolutely. Forever. The opposite happened. The opposite happened. What happened was the bad loans contaminated the good loans, yeah. and there was no way to separate them. They were bundled in a way that nobody could separate it. And the real problem was that the people who were selling those mortgages knew they were selling those mortgages and they weren't going to hold on to that debt. They were going to sell it off. Yeah. So it ended up with what they called ninja mortgages. People were getting mortgages on houses that had no income, no job, and no assets. So the acronym NINJA. And of, of course there were going to be wide-scale defaults. 20% defaults on those mortgages. Once people woke up one day, and the teaser mortgage rate that they bought the mortgage with expired, and now they had to go to market rates, and they found out that their mortgage payment doubled. It doubled. And they had no equity in the house because prices had started to fall. So if you have no skin in the game, no equity, and you can't afford the payment, what are you going to do? You're going to drop off the keys. And that's exactly what happened. And so we, we can't pretend that that's not a systemic failure. It is. But it's not just a technical failure, it's a moral failure. Okay, now we'll come back to mor morality and the virtues, mm -hmm. because what you say in the book is fascinating on those subjects, and plainly those people were displaying a distinct lack of virtues. That in itself destroys trust. Mm -hmm. But let's feed this through a moment. Uh, what happens to further diminish trust and to build that cynicism, especially amongst young people? The stack. Statistics out of Britain, for example, are staggering. Older people, 60% trust corporations, 5% of young people. Mm -hmm. It's astonishing stuff, mm -hmm. as I understand it. Now, governments regarded the Lehman Brothers, well, not Lehman's, but so many of these big financial institutions and so forth as too big to be allowed to fail. Mm -hmm. So the taxpayer, for example, bought GM. Bear Stearns. And, and what have you. Yeah. So. The public takes onto its balance sheet, if I can put it that way, the, all of the debt that's arisen out of the, the, this breakdown in morality, and that in itself has endangered people. 
uh, they've got to pay more taxes, they've got to give up services because governments have got to service bigger debts. Mm -hmm. uh, they're at greater risk of governments not being able to respond to an emergency. Uh, and worse than that, governments have been printing money, which surely stands behind this problem we've got of flatlining wages. Rapidly, the inflation had to go somewhere. They've been looking for inflation. It's come through in higher house prices. So young people look at this and say, I'm never going to be able to afford a home. That's right. They see themselves as locked out. And I'm really glad you mentioned what happened uh, in, in the UK, uh, because if you have a situation where the government assumes all the risk, but the private sector gets all the reward, you're going to create cynicism. Yeah. And that has happened. In terms of the debt situation, here's how I describe it to people. If you just look at the U.S. as an example, it's the world's largest economy and it's where the contagion happened. So let's look at it for a minute. Since 2008, we've had roughly 2 2.5% growth on average. Uh, even in the current administration, it's only been 2.4% in the three years uh, with the current administration. So that's produced somewhere around $5 trillion in increased GDP. In that exact same period of time where we've had $5 trillion in increased GDP, we've increased our national debt by $14 trillion and added $4.5 trillion in quantitative easing, right, through the mm. Federal Reserve into the economy. So it has cost us, it has cost America's balance sheet almost $20 trillion to get $5 trillion in growth. Mm. Can you imagine? If a CEO of a company said to the shareholders, oh, in the last 12 years, I've increased our P&L account by $5 billion, but I had to take $20 billion off the balance sheet to do it, they'd yeah. run them out of town on a rail, yeah. and rightfully so. That yeah. has happened to America, Inc., yeah. and that it really disturbs me. The second thing is personal debt. America uh, has now personal debt of $14 trillion. So combined between our national debt and personal debt, we're looking at almost $40 trillion. That's a lot of money. And most of it has happened in the last 12 years. Now that simply isn't sustainable. So people ask the question, how then does the US dollar defy gravity? And the answer is, right now, there is still a hegemony of the US dollar left over from Bretton Woods. It's still the world's reserve currency. But if you look at the IMF, only 60% now of, of uh, international trade uh, settlements are done using U.S. dollars. The figure used to be closer to 99. Now, the IMF is using a basket of currencies as a hedge against the dollar because even the IMF is concerned about the long-term viability of an economic system built on that much mm -hmm. debt. So if you're a 25-year-old person coming out of college in America with $70,000, $80,000 of student debt, and you can't even get a good paying job in the field that you studied for, and the prospect of getting on the housing ladder is very limited, of course you're going to look around and you're going to say, well, why, why do we think this is a good system? It was a good system maybe for my parents and their parents. Not sure it's a good system for me. And that kind of cynicism is really a big problem. Only 19% of millennials who are now coming into the middle management part of their careers consider themselves, self-identify as capitalists, 19%. In the home uh, of the country that uh, where it used to be said the business of America is business. That's right. 
Uh, and we should be clear here, it's not just America. Uh, no. Britain's debt to GDP ratio, if you really count unfunded liabilities, is horrendous. Mm-hmm. And now, of course, they're, they're really going on a spending binge. binge. Mm-hmm. Uh, right across Europe, the only country that's picked up, uh, every country has a much worse debt crisis than when this happened mm-hmm. 12 or so years ago. It threatens everything that we hold dear, I think, uh, and people don't realize it. We used to have uh, people in Congress that were called uh, deficit hawks. Mm. Uh, They tended to be Republican, and they were very concerned about ballooning Mm. deficits. We now have a Republican administration, which is spending money like a drunken sailor. Mm. We will have a $1 trillion annual deficit Mm. this year at a time of peace Mm. and growth. That's never happened. So we're now looking at 106% of GDP uh, for America's debt. And that is really scary. And add in the unfunded liabilities going forward. Well, uh, with our social security system, at least it's partially funded. Uh, In the UK, the social security system, the national insurance is totally unfunded. So the UK on paper, it only looks like 80%. But when you throw in the fact that they have a big national insurance bill that isn't funded at all, whereas the social security system is partially funded, uh, theirs is is very, very close to, uh, to America's as well. So now here for our listeners, we've got a conundrum, haven't we? Uh, we're saying, you and I are saying, that capitalism uh, needs redeeming, but it's still the best system. There's no alternative that's ever been demonstrated to work. Uh, on the other hand, we're saying we understand why people are highly cynical about what are we going to do about it. Young Americans and young British have been plainly prepared to say, well, let's walk away from it. We'll look seriously at socialism. I owe all this money. I'm going to have my university debt scrubbed off. I don't know who's going to pay them. I can't get into a home, etc., etc. Uh, we'll go for the socialist mantra that says, we'll write off your debts, we'll give you universal health care, we'll do this, that and the other. Uh, it's a dream, I'm afraid. It is. History tells dream. us it's a dream. It's a pipe dream. The A nightmare, really. Yeah. I mean, if you ask the average person on the street, I think, what is socialism? They really don't know. Uh, and, and even in the political sphere right now in America, no one's talking about classic socialism, you know, the the public ownership of the means mm. of production, distribution, and exchange. Um, we we just know that doesn't work. We, we've seen it fail time and time again, and the most spectacular collapse obviously being the, the collapse of the Soviet mm. Union. Uh, but we've seen it in other other smaller nations where it was tried and it failed. And of course, the, the Chinese experiment of having a totalitarian government but a, but a, a capitalist economy, the jury's still out how that's going to work. The, the attraction uh, of democratic socialism, I understand a little bit better because it isn't really socialism. Democratic socialism, as is practiced in many parts of Europe, is simply using the tax code as a way of distributing wealth that was created by the capitalists. Mm. So I can understand the attraction of that. The problem is, if you take that to its logical conclusion, you end up with classic socialism again. Yeah. And, and, and you therefore kill the goose that laid the golden egg. You, 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 you disincentivize people who take the risks, who invest yeah. the money, that create the wealth. Mm. And, uh, and that's what we're in danger of doing. We're in danger of creating socialism by a thousand mm. cuts. Now, that said, I would say that one of the problems with postmodern capitalism is the tax structure especially in America. It is the most convoluted and complex tax structure. We have 
Some I, of the I, riches. I think we could probably give you a run for well, our money. Maybe. <laughs> and I'm a former legislator, but our tech, I mean, it's, it's unreal. Yeah, but the result is that we have some of the richest individuals and richest companies are paying virtually no taxes. They can afford to find these Rube Goldberg kinds of uh, uh, you know, methods to, uh, to work the code and, and pay no taxes. That is one of the things that causes cynicism as well. If you're, again, a hardworking person, you get your first paycheck and you know, 40% of it's been taken out and you go, but wait a minute, I just saw on the news that Apple's not paying any taxes and they're making billions and I'm getting 40% of my paycheck taken. How's that fair? And so you know, our tax code is one thing that we have to look at. But you know, when, I, when the germ of this book was still happening, I hadn't written it yet, it was just formulating. I had a wonderful uh, lunch with, with a good friend of yours, Peter Costello. And um, we were talking about where legislation could be used to help the problem and where it can't. And, and I basically said, you know, Peter, legis- there's a role for legislation here. We, we need better laws. But at the end of the day, legislation can't fix this. Only the markets can fix it. It is actually a moral problem that society has to fix through the markets. This is a really critical point, and let's, let's basically take the conversation in that direction. A couple of uh, maybe illustrative uh, remarks. We had a Royal Commission of Inquiry into the banks and the, the financial sector in Australia a little Ooh. while back, uh, and it exposed all sorts of horrors. I want to say straight up that I still think a majority of bankers were probably, or a lot of them, were still trying to do the right thing. But boy, oh boy, did we learn some terrible things, mm. you know, some shocking things. And it confronted us with the reality that a culture had developed. Let me take the AMP. Mm-hmm. One of the most respected, in fact, Geoffrey Blaney described it in his history, uh, history of the AMP uh, as a unit that became, or an entity that became, one of the most respected uh, in Australia because you could trust it. You could trust it to do the right thing. Mm-hmm. It came out of the Royal Commission with reputation shattered. Its chairman had to go, its CEO went, the share market price collapsed. And it became obvious that they'd long since stopped asking what is the right thing to do and rather what will the law allow us to get away with. Now the result of the Royal Commission, of course, is 78 recommendations. That's more laws, more complexity. That's more surveillance. It's more regulation. It's more policing. The result is that because people have not done what they ought to have done without coercion, a breakdown in trust, a breakdown in freedom results because we go for the law book. Uh We try to coerce people. We have to coerce people. We'll always go for security over freedom if we don't feel safe. Uh And economic opportunity is damaged. It's slowed down the financial system, the flexibility of good products and their availability to people who want to borrow and grow businesses. This is a really vicious cycle. So now to come back to something you said, this is a result of moral choices that we've taken. That's right. Let's start elaborating on that. Well, you know, I taught at a very prestigious business school and um, loved my time there. And I was brought in because they recognized that for 40 years, Business schools didn't teach ethics. They taught compliance. And compliance is not the same thing as ethics. And when you start looking at it through the prism of compliance, it's all about how can I stay just on this side of the law? And even how can I push the boundaries of the interpretation of the law? 
And that's driven very much by a belief that um, if, we, if we just let everybody push the system to its extremes, as long as it doesn't break, everyone will benefit. It's, it's a kind of corporate ethical egoism. And the problem with that is that very, very quickly, ethical egoism morphs into selfishness. And that's a big problem. So instead of teaching compliance alone, you have to have people who are compliance officers, they started to teach ethics. How can we start asking the question, what is right? Not what is legal. What is good? Right? Not just what is convenient. What is the long-term horizon? Not just the expedient. Um, what are the potential risks to others? as well as the potential benefits to others, not just what are the potential risks and benefits to ourselves. And that's the difference between teaching compliance and ethics. And I go back in the book to Adam Smith, which shocks a lot of people. That's why the Adam Smith chapter is such an important chapter in the book, because Adam Smith was not an economist. Uh, he was a moral philosopher. And the book that he wrote 20 years before Wealth of Nations... People forget he wrote that first book. That's right. He didn't change his views in the interim? No, 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 not at all. When he wrote Moral Sentiments, he was looking at the question, why do people care about each other? That was the issue. What we would call empathy, he called sympathy. But he, was just, he just found it curious that there was something innate in humans that made them want to look after the welfare of others. So he tried to get to the bottom of that in, uh, in uh, Moral Sentiments. By the time he got to um, uh, Wealth of Nations, he was interested in why some economies work better than others and wasn't as concerned about individual morality. He was more concerned about group morality and, and, and why some systems, even without people trying, create systems that work for everyone. Now, there's a famous quotation, of course, from Wealth of Nations that it is not from the benevolence of the butcher, the baker, and the brewer that we get our dinner, but from their self-interest, that people say is the smoking gun that proves capitalism is this, you know, this ego-driven, greed-driven, selfish system. That couldn't be further from the truth. Because self-interest is not the same thing as selfishness. Self-love is actually a virtue. Selfishness is when you look after your needs at the expense of others, whereas self-love is simply presumed as having a, self, a healthy regard for self. In fact, the double love command in Christianity, thou shalt love the Lord your God with all your heart, your soul, your mind, your strength. The second is like it, you shall love your neighbor, how? As yourself. So it presumes self-interest, self-love. There's nothing wrong with that, it's healthy. And what Adam Smith understood was that without even trying. If people in an honest environment who care about each other, who have a moral compass, do good things in their business for the benefit of their business, all the boats will rise with the tide. And he was right. And that's one of the things that makes capitalism work. But he also said, and this is what people forget, he said that we need to guard against our more extreme appetites. We need to use the moral compass that he talks about in Moral Sentiments to ensure that we don't allow self-interest to become selfishness, that we don't uh, uh, have our desire to flourish to become greed because we have these natural tendencies as part of a fallen race. 
So I, I talk about it in the book quite explicitly because it's easy for people to misunderstand why things like profit, for instance, are a good thing and not a bad thing. Because it's when we have profit and when we create wealth that we have this opportunity for flourishing. And it's when we use those things for everyone's sake, including through the tax system, that the entire community flourishes. But there was a warning from Adam Smith as well, and I put it in the book. Probably surprised a lot of people who thought they knew Adam Smith. He said excess profits, however, that's a term you don't hear very often, excess profits have the same long-term effect on an economy as high interest rates. He says, because you continue to concentrate too much wealth in too few hands, and you actually cut off your own future market. Someone once asked um, Henry Ford, how much do you pay your workers? And he says, I want to make sure all of them have enough money to buy one of my cars. When slavery was abolished in 1811 uh, in the UK Parliament, um, who did they appeal to for the economic argument against slavery? They appealed to Adam Smith. Because the slave owners said, you can't take away our slaves. We don't. That's how we make our money. It will destroy us economically. They referred back to Smith and they said, no, no, no. Adam Smith says that slavery is not only a moral abomination, it's an economic self-defeating system. Because you are denying the very people the fruits of their labor and you need them to have fruit in order to have the whole economy grow. So Adam Smith actually gives us a much more virtuous view of what capitalism could be, what capitalism should be, than those neoliberals who claim to point to Smith and say, yeah. ethical egoism. He was not an ethical egoist by any stretch of the imagination. If anything, he was a deontologist or a virtue ethicist, and I point that out in the book. Fantastic. Now let's start to unpack the classic and the Christian virtues, mm. which to my surprise you brought in. I'm very interested in that. Now you said of Lehman Brothers, two interesting things. Plainly, uh, they were exercising uh, uh, or displaying an enormous lack of prudence. What they were doing lacked prudence. And prudence is not, as it's often understood in the negative, it's much more than that. It's about mm. what you ought to do, mm, as much exactly. as what you ought not to do. Yes. The second thing, though, people don't often stop and think about this. You said they were worried about losing face. That's courage. But you unpack, in a, that's a second reason people ought to buy the book, you actually unpack the Aristotelian or the classic virtues. Mm -hmm. uh, I suspect that uh, you know, most Australians, for most of Australia's history, would have had quite a strong awareness of those virtues and what they were and why they were important. Now they're washed out of the, uh, out of the, out of the system pretty much altogether. What are those classic virtues and, and how, what relevance do they bear? to what might be called civilized capitalism. Yeah, well, thank you for mentioning that. Um, the so-called cardinal virtues, uh, they are Aristotelian in their origin, but of course then the Judeo-Christian uh, uh, religions adopted them, if you will, because they are universal. Uh, and they are, they are clearly a reflection uh, for people who are people of faith to understand that they originate with God. And therefore, every human being has in them uh, a distinct knowledge of those virtues, even if they're never taught them. You, you don't have to teach a child right, not to lie, because when they lie, they become sheepish, and they know it. They know that they've lied. You don't have to teach a child uh, that they've done something wrong. They know shame when they've done things wrong. 
And these, these virtues are so much bigger than any particular parochial religion or anything else. So prudence, courage, justice, and temperance are the four cardinal virtues. And as you mentioned, prudence is not just caution. That's, that's the common usage of the word. Aristotle said, prudence is the art of knowing what to want and what not to want. That is sublime. And if it, when it comes to economics, you have to ask yourself, what are we supposed to want? Well, if all we want is to make as much money as possible, um, regardless of the effects on others, that's not prudent. Because to be virtuous, what you want has got to be good for more than just yourself. It can be good for yourself, it should be good for yourself, but it must be good for everyone as well. The common good is fundamental. And that's why, by the way, I am very hard on the Friedman Doctrine, uh, which was taught in business schools for two generations. Not Friedman's economic policy of monetization, that was genius. But Friedman's moral doctrine is very flawed because he said that the only moral responsibility of a corporate executive is to make as much money as possible within the constraints of law and custom. Well, I gave you examples in Lehman Brothers of very immoral things that brought the system down that weren't illegal. And we don't have a common custom anymore when it comes to what is right or what is wrong. No common set of values. Exactly. So we have to now appeal to these intrinsic values. And prudence is there, but it's been dulled. And Aristotle told us that virtue is forged in virtuous acts. The more virtuous things we do, the more virtuous we become. And so because we've dulled our sense of virtue, because we've dulled our sense of prudence, we no longer exercise it, it no longer has value to us, so we no longer benefit from us. So we've got to change the narrative and bring virtue back into the conversation, starting with prudence. Prudence is the mother of all virtues, but also justice, also justice. and. Again, if you look at the way Aquinas understood Aristotle's virtue of justice, he said it's not just reparative justice, which is something we talk about all the time, which actually is very difficult to achieve, but commutative justice, the justice in our relationships with each other. What does it mean to treat someone fairly? What does it mean to have a system that, yes, rewards risk, and entrepreneurship and all of those things, investment, creativity, but yet is still fair for everyone and doesn't exclude large swathes of the population, but ensures the system is there for them. What does that kind of justice look like? Uh, And then courage. Courage is not folly. Courage is when you have the fortitude to stand against those things that oppose virtue itself. So when we see unvirtuous activity, we have to have the courage to say, that's wrong. That's courage, not folly, not tilting at windmills. And temperance, I'm afraid, is a lost virtue. We live in a world of excess. You hear it in the songs that we hear on the radio. I want it all. I want it now. Uh, Everything is about more, 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 me, 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 and Really, what used to be considered vulgar is now celebrated. So there's no sense of temperance, no sense of enough's enough. But let me give you a story of a company that did something very different. The Mars Corporation. 
confectioners. They mm. have other business units, dog food and other things, but mainly a confectionery company. Mars bars. That's right, Mars bars. Fantastic. Very common in Australia. That's right. So it's a it's a family business. Most people don't know it's a multi-billion-dollar family business. But the shareholders are not particularly religious people. They had a shareholders meeting about five years ago, and one of the shareholders asked a prudent question: How much is enough? Now, how many times do shareholders or or executives sit around a table and say, "How much is enough?" No one had asked that question. It was always more, more, more. When they asked that question, they came up with a number. They said, frankly, enough is X, because we pay ourselves dividends and we're all zillionaires. Enough is X. And they said, okay, we all know we're going to make Y. So what do we do with the delta between X and Y? Well, what a lot of companies do is they start foundations, right? the Mars Benevolent Foundation, and then academics like Ken Barnes come around with our cup and say, can we have a few million for research? (laughs) They said, no, let's not do that. Let's rethink our value chain. And let's take what Adam Smith said seriously about excess profits. And let's wash those excess profits through the value chain. Because if you think about it, where they get a lot of their raw materials is some of the poorest places in the world, cocoa and sugar. So they went back to their suppliers. They started at the, at the beginning of the value chain. And they said to their suppliers, we're going to pay a premium for what you sell us. But all the money can't go to one rich farmer. You've got to agree that if we pay a premium, more than the other guys are going to pay you in our sector, if we pay you a premium, you've got to promise us that that money is going to be shared with the whole community. You're going to bid schools. You're going to build hospitals. You're going to build women's health centers. You're going to build sanitary systems and water systems. And you're going, to, you're going to reinvest and have people flourish. Now, you can imagine the response. People said they were crazy. But guess what? They did that all through the value chain. And ultimately, everybody in the Mars value chain flourished because they asked a prudent question. How much? is enough. And you know what? Mars made more money than they've ever made before and still flushed all those profits through Mm. the value chain. So we can do virtuous capitalism. We can decide, but we're going to have to change the way we understand the nature of corporations. Shareholders aren't the only fiduciary interest. We need a stakeholder economy where we say, of course, shareholders have primus inter pares. It's their money. But Every stakeholder and every decision that's made that affects a stakeholder should be part of what executives think about when they make decisions. Not just the next conference call with the analysts, not just when I exercise my stock options will I make a big bonus, but what's right for everybody, all the stakeholders, all the way through the value chain. If we can change that narrative, we'll come a long way. Let's uh, come back to what you're saying there about corporations and boards, I guess you mean, uh, thinking more broadly about stakeholder involvement. What we've seen in this country is a lot of talk around how we need to change the business model because you can't just consider your shareholders, you've got to consider uh, the broader community. On the surface of it, that sounds good, but we've had a major bank in this country that has lectured us endlessly, frankly, and I think inappropriately, Uh, on what we should think about social issues uh, and some of the issues of the day, climate change. Then it turns out 
that in fact they're under massive investigation for involvement in providing channels for people to access porn, uh, the child porn out of Asia. Mm -hmm. uh, and they're being used not just by Australians, but by people around the rest of the world. Mm. Uh, and so it raises real questions. Whose virtues? What are virtues? Whose are they? And what worries me is that I think a lot of the business world thinks we're not liked anymore, we're not trusted anymore. So we'll try and meet the culture where it is rather than being focused on what real virtue is. So you talked about the common virtues, mm -hmm. and we'll come to that in a moment because you add some to the common virtues, which is really interesting. But firstly, on this question of, uh, you know, you talk in the book about how companies are waking up, boards are waking up. Are they really or are they just wanting to placate distrust and uh, dislike in the community? How do we get them to talk about real virtue instead of yeah. what I would call virtue signaling? I think you call it something else. Virtue washing, yeah. Um, well, let me just say that I think it's a little of both. I think some companies are actually walking the walk, uh, not as many as we'd like. But, you know, Goldman Sachs just put out a recent study. Uh, they were looking at the key words that were coming across during the conference calls with publicly listed companies. And a lot of these key words were around these stakeholder issues. Now, you know, was that because again, they wanted to tick the box? You know, they just want to be seen as virtuous? You can only get away with that so long. You just mentioned a classic example of a company that pretended it was being virtuous, but all of a sudden is exposed as not being. Uh, in the days of social media, I don't think they can get away with it anymore. I think if companies are going to talk the talk, they're going to have to walk the walk, or they will pay a much heavier price than if they had never done it in the first place. Um, there's nothing that upsets people more, especially the emerging generations, than the hypocrisy. So they're going to have to be serious about this. They're going to have to mean it, and they're going to have to demonstrate it. I'm actually uh, in conversations with uh, an investment house that's in the ESG space, the environmental, social, and governance space. It's the largest growing space in all of investing, especially with high net worth individuals. They want to invest in companies whose values reflect their values. Sometimes they're people of religious conviction, others they're just people who have a social conscience. And, and so the amount of money that's going into these ESG, as they're called, uh, mutual funds is huge. It's, it's absolutely huge. But there's this problem. How do you, how do you rank them? And so uh, there are agencies out there now, independent agencies, that are looking to find ways to, uh, to rank these companies. Um, I am uh, currently involved in a project to use artificial intelligence, actually, uh, to scan mo um, um, uh, social media to find out what people outside of those companies are actually saying about it and not relying solely on what the companies put out in their annual reports or on their websites. So there are a lot of us out there in this space who are doing exactly that. How do we hold people accountable and how do we make sure that they walk the walk? So mm. we're, we're thinking about those things. I've got to divert for a moment. If, if you're checking out what they're saying on social media, the problem with that is that activists and people with sort of out there views are much more active, I suspect, on social media than mainstream. Does that give you a good read? Can you well, good you, read? Can, you can build filters into can the you? system, yeah. So yeah. without getting into too much mm. uh, technical information here, I recently mm. did a, a, um, a certificate in artificial intelligence at MIT because it's very close to where I teach mm. in Boston. And... Uh, uh, learned a little bit about this particular area. And there are ways that you can structure the algorithms so that you weed out 
the shouters, the yellers, okay? And you, can, and you, you do it by using word groupings. Right. So you don't just take a particular word, you put context words into right. the algorithms, and the context words weed out uh, the, the shrill voices, wow. because those shrill voices always use certain context words, mm-hmm. and so you can, you can weed out the shrill voices. So you'd require to be uh, rigorous in applying a virtuous approach to getting the truth. Uh, if you're using algorithms. Everybody's suspicious now of how algorithms are used. Well, well, they shouldn't be. I mean, algorithms are just a tool like anything else. They can be used for good or ill. Yeah. Uh, I've been spending quite a lot of time for the last few years uh, with the folks at MIT in the media labs where they are doing the, the, the actual raw research in uh, how artificial intelligence works. And they want, by the way, religious voices in the room to discuss ethics and virtue. Uh, because they're concerned about a range of issues about how artificial intelligence is used, mm. how it's applied. They don't want to create a Frankenstein's monster, mm. I can assure you. Uh, you know, they want to create something that's going to benefit society, not harm society. So that's, that's a, an area you raise it, it's important. But you know what the most important filter is? Culture. Yeah. Business culture. And that's where I want to go now. Yep. You've outlined the common uh, virtues, mm-hmm. if you like, uh, that we can all understand, regardless of our cultural or um, uh, religious heritage. But you go on in this book to say, too, that the Christian virtues are also uniquely important. This is important to understand because, as Max Weber wrote, you know, the, the Protestant work ethic and all the rest of it, capitalism has reached its sort of highest points, really, in the Protestant societies. It's been surely influenced uh, significantly by Calvinism. Calvinism argued that faith can't be compartmentalized. What you believe on Sunday ought to be carried forward into the week. Um, So how do you explain the role of the Christian virtues, faith, hope, love, uh, in relation to business? Most people would say, what have they got to do with business? Yeah, they do say that sometimes until fortunately have a conversation or they read the book. Uh, and Abraham Kuyper is, is someone that people should read as well. You know, uh, late 18th, early 19th century uh, Dutch polymath, a Calvinist, who really understood this relationship between uh, Calvinist values and capitalism. He's, he's someone people should read if they're interested in classic thinking. So why faith, hope, and love? Well, the cardinal virtues, a lot of people have written about the benefit to business of employing the cardinal virtues. I am, I think, the first to say that actually the theological virtues, as Aquinas called them, uh, also have a place, and here's why. We call them theological because we ascribe their source to God, but in fact, they are just as universal as the cardinal virtues. You cannot have an economic system that works properly without faith. It's impossible. It has to have faith in something bigger than just yourself. I had a wonderful experience a few years ago when I was back in Oxford, and I was asked to give a talk at a community center, secular environment, uh, on arguments for the existence of God. And uh, I started by asking a simple question to the audience. I said, is there anyone in this audience who doesn't live according to a faith proposition. And some young man immediately put his hand up and he said, I live by facts, not faith. And I thought, oh, good. I'm glad he said that. And uh, I said, do you have any money on you? He said, yes. I said, let me see. He took out a five pound note. Now, Britain uses fiat currency just like the rest of us. 
And I said, I'll bet you this five pound note, and I took it from him. I said, I'll bet you I can convince you in a minute that you build most of your life on a faith proposition. And I proceeded to explain fiat money. And the fact that that was nothing more objectively than a colored piece of paper. But he had faith in the Bank of England. He had faith in the system that said if he presented that in a shop, he would receive goods and services. But if the world lost faith in the Bank of England and lost faith in the pound, it would be reduced to nothing more than a piece of colored paper. And I put the five pound note in my pocket. <laughs> you said that in the book. And that, yeah. and that was everybody's, that was everybody's uh, reaction. Everyone loved that. Right. But it's true. You see, you know, we have to trust each other for economics to work. Yeah. Now for people of faith, like yeah. Christians, yeah. Um, obviously it starts with faith in God. Mm. But even the most agnostic or even hard atheist person will tell you that societies need faith in things beyond just individuals themselves. I spent quite a lot of time in Oxford uh, talking to evolutionary biologists, including uh, Richard Dawkins, by the way, um, about why is it that in biological evolution, um, only systems that have a group ethic actually survive, much less thrive. And it's universal. Uh, so it isn't just dog-eat-dog. -dog. It isn't just survival of the fittest. There's actually always some group responsibility in every healthy biological yeah. system. It's the same for us and it's the same for economics. So we have to have faith. It makes sense for me to start with the fact that I believe in God and I believe a God who has given us a moral compass to work with. So that drives my faith in economics. But even if someone doesn't have that, we need faith again in our institutions and we've lost it. We've lost faith in capitalism. We've lost faith in the banks. We've lost faith in government. We've lost faith in the news. We've lost faith. And because of that loss of faith, we now have a post-truth culture. We have a post-truth culture because we no longer trust the sources of our information or the institutions that our society was built on. We need desperately to regain faith in economics and in the rest of society. And hope, hope is what drives investment. Why would a person take their hard-earned assets and risk it if not in the hope of a return? And it's because people don't see hope for themselves in the future of this postmodern capitalist system that they're withdrawing from it. They're violently arguing against it because they've lost hope. So we have to bring hope back into the system. And it starts by listening to the young people. I have to tell you, the thing that annoys me the most is how many people in my generation who have benefited from capitalism and liberal democracy just you know, have a dismissive attitude to these voices. Shame on us, because these are serious voices and we need to listen to them and we need to learn from them and we need to assure them that they shouldn't lose hope, that they should have hope because the system can produce phenomenal results, including for them. But it's only going to happen if we think of each other and not just ourselves, which brings us to the last of the theological virtues. And it's the thing that I think is missing most in economics today, and that's love. Now, I say that people go, oh, Ken, love, that's so romantic and sentimental and but that's a mawkish understanding of love. It's certainly not the biblical understanding of love. The biblical 
understanding of love is not given to us in words at all. It's given to us in the symbol of the cross. When he who had everything emptied himself for those who had nothing. So if we can bring love, which is nothing more than concern for the other, into economics, then I think faith, hope, and love, together with the cardinal virtues, can redeem capitalism. I think that's a fascinating set of insights, and explained that way makes a lot of sense. And actually, you know, we tend to be so cynical, don't we? But we've got some remarkable examples out of your country, out of America, of people who have generated great wealth and basically decided to be very sacrificial with it and give it away. Mm -hmm. Some stunningly wealthy people. Mm -hmm. As a little aside, Australia is one of the seven biggest donors to international agricultural research. Bill Gates described uh, uh, agricultural research as the quickest way to move people out of poverty. Mm -hmm. Agricultural research and know-how and application. Um, and uh, of the seven greatest donors, uh, six are countries. It's probably the only area where Australia's in the big seven. Six are donors, one's an individual, mm. and he's not number seven. Mm. Yeah. <laughs> or oh, it's them, it's, it's Bill it. and Melinda Gates. That's right. So we, um, you know, when we're cynical, um, we ought to remember that even people, and I don't describe, I don't believe they have any particular religious beliefs, I don't know, uh, but they've done it. It's, it's a powerful, powerful thing that they've done, and they're not alone. Mm. So there are examples out there. Well, you know, that um, history of philanthropy in America came out of the Protestant work ethic, yeah. because the Calvinists who were creating all this wealth, and the reason why they were creating the wealth, very interesting uh, um, understanding of how that happened. They believed in the methodical ordering of their lives. Yeah. That was part of their worship. Their mm. work was part of their worship. Well, if you have an you entire don't compartmentalize. That's right. Yeah. So if you have an entire culture of people who believe in this rational, methodical, this worldly asceticism, so that my work is my worship, and therefore I'm going to work hard and create wealth. But on the same hand, they they had this kind of neo-puritanical revulsion to excess. What are you gonna do with all that money? Well, they did two things. They put it back into the businesses or they gave it away. And so it's interesting. Every year, you know, there's, there are these reports what countries give away the most money as a percentage of GDP. And America is always mid-table and it confuses people. But those reports only include the government's the government money. Yep. If you include the private sector, America is the most generous nation in the world mm. by far because there's this long-standing tradition of giving money away. But I have to say, that's not an alternative to a more equitable capitalism. Mm. We need capitalism to work better for the common good. We're still going to produce a lot of very wealthy people, but we're going we're gonna to break down some of this uh, really entrenched and, and really hyper wealth inequality. Some wealth inequality is normal. It's not immoral. I don't have a problem with it. Some people are smarter than others, they work harder, they're lucky or whatever it might be. But we now have a hyper inequality and it's getting more dramatic to the point where, as I say in the book, the eight richest people in the world have more wealth than half the rest yeah. of the world. Mm. That's not sustainable. Mm. That puts off the emerging generations yeah. and we've got to address that. Yeah, but let's, let's be blunt. It's not just uh, those few people who hold all that wealth you've also got an intergenerational problem, which really concerns me. It's very evident in this country. Uh, to set 
generation against generation is a terrible thing. And younger people look at the price of assets as their parents and grandparents become wealthier and wealthier and wealthier and they can't get their first foot on the bottom ladder. Yeah, this is a fault line opening up in Western society that is that must be addressed urgently yes. if we're to keep some sense of coherency in our communities, I think. And the cost of public health care yeah. and the cost of social security and superannuations mm. and all these things, mm. they benefit the older generations at mm. the expense of the people going yeah. to pay the bills. Do you know it's interesting? I've told people if I could wave a magic wand and pass one law, yeah. it would be that no new home should be allowed to be built that doesn't have an annex connected to it, a granny flat. Because intergenerational living is one of the reasons why we have this problem, because we don't live intergenerationally anymore. Yeah. I actually have a flat connected to my home. My wife and I live in, in a modest, you know, four bedroom, two bath house, nice house. We have this little one bedroom, one bath annex. Now, my daughter and her husband and their newborn baby lived there for about a year and helped them get on their feet, etc. But I've told them, I built that annex for me and for their mother. I would like to see the day when they take on the big house and we move into the small house. We don't need the big house and nothing makes me want to live more than my grandson. And I think the 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 biggest weakness we have culturally is that we don't have the passing on of intergenerational wisdom, which is where these virtues lie. Yeah. And because we've cut off that intergenerational mm. wisdom, we have generations yeah. coming up without an understanding of these yeah. things. And let's be blunt, a lot of that's been quite deliberate by people who loathe our way of life, Yes. including in our own midst. Well, I, I think you've done an unbelievable service to us in, in explaining what's gone wrong and explaining the virtues so clearly and so succinctly, adding in the Christian virtues, but leading us to understand that they were universal as well. Mm. Terrific. That's where the value in the book, to my way, premier value, probably lies. But the question becomes, how do we make virtue fashionable again, for want of a better term? You've got some ideas? Yeah. So thank you for what you say. It's, it's very gracious of you. I, as I say in the book, it's a can-to book, not a how-to book. Yeah. The how-to is going to have to be worked out by the business community, by the church, by government, etc. But I do give some ideas. And, and I talk about redeeming it from the bottom up and from the top down. Let's talk about the bottom up for a minute. I think it starts with redeeming work. You know, I talk about my father and his, his example coming out of abject poverty into the middle class, if you will, and doing it through work. Um, we've gotten to the point where we, we devalue work. We, we, we no longer uh, understand work as anything more than a, just a base necessity. But actually, we're created in the image of a God who is the worker par excellence, to borrow from James Francis. And, and what it means to be human means to work. Uh, when, when we were given the social mandate right out of the blocks in the Bible, it was, it was to go and be fruitful. And you do that through work. And most people actually find a certain degree of meaning and purpose in life through their work. And if you don't believe me, next time you're at a cocktail party and you meet somebody for the first time, after you've asked their name, you'll almost certainly say, what do you do? And they don't tell you what they do. They tell you who they are. They don't say, oh, I teach children maths. They say, I'm a teacher. Oh, I, they don't say, oh, I, I work with contracts. They say, I am a lawyer. 
Our work is ontological. It defines who we are. We need to recapture that because unfortunately we have a generation of people coming up who see work as a necessary evil. That's not a good narrative. We've got to change that. We've got to make work something truly meaningful and purposeful for the common good, for everyone. In my, uh, in my studies on uh, artificial intelligence and robotics and the future of work, we could have situations where we have very, very high endemic unemployment, not for any reason other than the technology has done the jobs we used to do. There could be a period of time where we have a lot of people who are living off some sort of universal income. What are they going to do with that time? Well, it can be one of two things. Either it can be a you know, kind of catch-22, you know, uh, brave new world dystopia where people self-medicate and turn to drugs and alcohol, or we might have an opportunity to harness human work in a way that allows communities to flourish, that, that, that brings generations together. It could be a wonderful opportunity. So redeeming work is one. Another is, again, redeeming money. Let's go back to understanding what money is. Uh, and we have a situation now where we don't really know anymore what money is because of this system where we just are over-monetizing for the purpose of you know, keeping the music playing while we walk around the chairs and we know there's one chair too few and when the music stops, no one wants to be left out. No one wants to be the person who's the head of the Fed or the president or the prime minister when the, when the music stops. And so, you know, we've got to redeem money and we have to start looking at the financial sector as an intermediary sector again. Traditionally, as you know, the banking sector was about 3% of GDP because it was there to bring liquidity into the economy in order to finance more technology, and etc. It's now 7% of GDP, which means in many ways the financial sector is just churning money and not really feeding the rest of the economy, and it's certainly not being felt by the people at the bottom. So we have to redeem money. We have to think about corporate culture. I say in the book that culture, the basic primary colors of culture are shared values, shared language, and shared history. Well, we've got to change our corporate cultures to ensure that our corporate values aren't self-serving, that our corporate values are actually virtuous values, and that we create a lingua franca inside of our organizations that really encourage people to act a certain way, and then we both reward and punish people based on what they do. I unpack in the book the LIBOR scandal, the, under, the London um, overnight interrate uh, 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 system that sets the overnight rates for the world's economy. And it was a handful of bankers at the mid-level of these large multinational banks that rigged the system. They rigged the system. They were three levels below the corner office, so you can't blame the corner office for this particular uh, uh, situation. So what happened? The fact of the matter is there was a culture at Barclays Bank, there was a culture at some of the other banks involved that made it thinkable that you could actually rig the LIBOR system which affects trillions of dollars of overnight transfers. That's a cultural issue. That it could even have been thinkable. Barings Bank. There are so many examples that I talk about where it's actually almost like groupthink, where people just decide that all that matters is how are we going to make more money today? And we don't care about the consequences tomorrow 
or the consequences on anyone else. And then the, the redeeming capitalism from the top down is kind of the fun one, and that's changing the narrative. And you know what? We can change the narrative. Never believe that we can't change the narrative because we've seen it when it comes to the environment. We've seen it when it comes to drink driving. We've seen it when it comes to animal welfare. We've seen it when it comes to sexual ethics. We've seen many, many examples where the, the narrative has changed because thought leaders convinced communities to spread the word. And when it comes to something like virtuous capitalism, I think thought leaders have got to convince the church and business leaders of faith first that they can make the change by changing the narrative. And the rest of it is going to have to be figured out on the ground. It's got to be a grassroots thing. And I tell people someone else is going to have to write the how-to book, and that's going to be written by the people in the trenches, not by academics. Interesting. When I read uh, 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 your thoughts there, I thought to myself, I think that's a bit naive, especially in this country. Nobody's going to take any notice of the church. And half the, half the church thinks prophet's a dirty word anyway. They've fallen for a false narrative, in my view. Mm -hmm. uh, I really do think that. Uh, but then I thought to myself, no, actually, history's on your side. You know, you go back to the time that Australia was settled. Um, virtue was pretty lacking in Great Britain, I've got to say. It was a pretty frightful place. Mm -hmm. Immorality, political corruption, uh, um, alcoholism, alcoholism, yeah. the whole bit. Mm. And the biggest business in the world was the British East India Company. It was basically England in India. Leaving aside debates about colonialism for a moment, they were behaving absolutely outrageously. Mm -hmm. And it was a group of people headed up by William Wilberforce who forced a new business charter uh, on the British East India Company completely and absolutely altered their legal obligations. Now, it wouldn't have worked and of course it was a work in progress, it didn't sort of suddenly change overnight. If it wasn't that virtue was becoming more fashionable in that society. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, it's even captured in the old sort of, it's not cricket chum, you know. Mm -hmm. uh, there was a whole ethos that changed. So the changing of the law, plus it becoming more fashionable, meant that the British East India Company had to let, for example, missionaries into open schools and educating the, uh, Indian kids. Mm -hmm. It meant that... Uh, uh, sooty, the burning of widows, alive on their husband's peers at a time when husbands frequently died, unbelievably cruel and widespread, was outlawed and they started to police it. Um, they started to uh, take uh, gifted Indians back to educate them in Oxford and they formed the basis of a more modern society. Now, I'm not saying it was perfect by any means, I don't want to argue that, but it was a dramatic change mm -hmm. that led to much, much better outcomes for a lot of people in both the laws that surrounded the biggest business of the day and the culture that, that ultimately came to survive in it. So uh, we ought to be encouraged as well as challenged by that, I think. I agree with that 100%. I mean, if you look at really the great social movements, whether it's the establishment of uh, hospitals and mm. schools for the common person, mm. um, the abolition of slavery, all of these things, they were started primarily by people of faith. Mm. Um, who weren't, you know, do-gooders. Mm. They were people who honestly believed that these were intrinsic goods mm. that had to be uh, established to overcome intrinsic evils. And, and so they, they triumphed, even though at the time they were often mocked, ridiculed, marginalized. But in the marketplace of ideas, our ideas win. Mm. And so we shouldn't be ashamed of our ideas or afraid of our ideas, even if we're starting from a position where it's a minority opinion. Mm. 
The greatest threat is the heckler's veto that stifles free speech, that doesn't allow us to have these arguments. That's the one thing we have to watch out for the most. But in the marketplace of ideas, I think we win. I think people want a virtuous economic system. And the fact that they are grasping at these false utopian solutions tells me that actually they're willing to try something new. And it's much safer to redeem the current system than to try to replace it. Well, Ken, on that note, thank you very much indeed. And I can't recommend the book too highly. Anybody interested in the future of our society, and I hope that's everyone, ought to read this. Uh, It so clearly unpacks what's gone wrong, why capitalism was different once because it operated in a different moral environment, why it's gone wrong, and what we need to do to recapture it and make it work again for all of us. Thank you very much indeed. Thank you. It was my pleasure. You've been listening to Conversations with John Anderson. For further content, visit johnanderson.net.au.